Scripture reading is Genesis 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that the, he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on, was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in, in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and, and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until, until his master came home. And she told them the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But, but as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the word of God. I'm going to begin with two narratives. And as you hear them, I want you to think about which story do I resonate more with? Which person do I feel I connect more with or whose life sounds like mine, or am I more sympathetic to? Now, both th these uh, come from the world of architecture, so perhaps you'll connect with neither of them. But listen for the theme. So the first narrative is an individual who is born in, in a fairly 
well-off family and so had the opportunity for a really good education that set uh, this person up for a successful career in architecture. Uh, designed a number of buildings that, that are, are uh, well-respected, well-known, and also because of that got the attention of uh, world leaders who then wanted this person to do work in their own countries. A uh, person lived a pretty long life, had kids, and the kids seemed to have done pretty well, avoided major scandals, uh, overall, uh, a long, successful kind of life. That's one story, one narrative. Now, here's another one of somebody also, uh, so this is an architectural narrative, a person who moves to the United States to go to college in order to study an architecture program, and in the first week realizes not only uh, is it not a good fit in terms of the style being taught, but, but realizing other students are coming with, with skills, um, and so transfers out of the school and decides to go into engineering instead. Uh, makes the way back into architecture, um, graduates, designs a building that, that uh, apparently was well designed, but, but was a bit impractical in terms of the, the uh, materials were too expensive. So it never, got, it never went beyond the, the model that even though that there was a contract. Uh, later designed a building that would have been a quite a prominent building, but became known for having uh, glass windows fly off the building in a major urban center when it got too windy. Um, and then was going to do a work in France where immediately people wondered, this person's not French. Why is this person doing architecture in our country or in our city of Paris? But uh, this individual said, I uh, believe that 90% of the people of Paris were against his plan when it was revealed even before the building was there. So um, which of those narratives do you feel like, oh, that sounds a little bit more like my life, or I get that person, or I would want to hang out with that person. Now, again, these are not extremes, and maybe you find yourself thinking, uh, I don't know, uh, you're not drawn to either. That's okay. This is just an exercise. But perhaps what may be obvious to you is I'm not talking about two different people. I'm talking about one person but, but drawing out components of their story, and the person happens to be I.M. Pei. Uh, so sort of a, a well-known, well-regarded, successful architect. But like any story of success, there's always challenges. And so, yes, he did design the, the Hancock uh, building in Boston that, um, that millions of dollars had to be spent to, to re-deal with the windows because of uh, uh, the police having to block off the streets below because glass was crashing down anytime it was windy. He also designed uh, a number of components of, a, of, of the Louvre but in France, but including that pyramid, that there was so much resistance to. But, but after that period, it's become very admired, respected. Of course, not everybody likes it. Um, but in contrast to the resistance, he said, after that, no job seemed like it would be hard. It was really hard. We know that any success story has failure, has adversity, has difficulty. And yet when it comes to our own narratives, our own life stories, the, uh, the adversity, the difficulty, the failure, it's really hard to exist in it without that feeling like a dominant narrative. That all of a sudden we see that there are success narratives that, that, that we're losing out on and we start to resent successful people. We start to get this, this self-fulfilling prophecy about I'm never going to fit in. I'm never going to succeed. I'm always going to lose out. And then we become hyper in tune with those kinds of details. And anybody can go through that. 
But people of faith process that theologically. It becomes an issue because maybe if you do have natural success, the danger is pride. That then you think I'm fine with God simply because I'm a person who lives well. And, and we know that that's theologically problematic and, and can lead to lots of problems. Most of us more likely, though, find ourselves going through periods where we're morally we're doing fine. Our Christian community is fine, but some area of life. Now, it could be Christian related. You're, you're dry spiritually. You're morally failing, but it could be unrelated. You just have a re- relationship that's a problem or things are really tense in the workplace or something happens and we can't help but but have that narrative take over and start to, to, uh, to tap into our shame. One danger is pride. Another danger is shame because shame makes us start to look at the details of our lives and think, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to fail. I'm a fraud. And, and how we relate to God gets shaped by that. And we're looking at the Joseph story. And what's interesting about the chapter we're looking at today is it's a success story, <laughs> Uh, We keep reading the word success, uh, prosperity could be a different translation, sort of an actually in some, like in our Christian circles, a bit of an uncomfortable word. How how are we to think about success? Are we really supposed to, is is success worldly? And so here's Joseph who's being described as successful. He, He seems to have this Midas touch that everything he touches turns to gold. He's just, he seems to be good looking, powerful, prominent, rising the ranks. But then you pay attention to the context and yes, He's doing his job very well, but he's doing his job as a slave. He's been betrayed by his brothers, and everything that he's doing with excellence is done in service to Potiphar, some foreigner who's kept him trapped, in a sense. And then he prospers, but he's accused falsely and winds up in prison for years. And we read he was, and the Lord is with him and prospers his work. But remember, his work is prospering in prison, in a place he doesn't want to be after he's been betrayed. And so so what is the Joseph story? Is it, is it a story of somebody who's successful? Yes. Is it a story of somebody who's suffering, who's experiencing injustice, uh, who's having terrible things happen? And, and the answer is yes, it's, it's both of those stories. And we have to be careful that we don't tap into just one of those that we think either the life of faith uh, brings a certain kind of success that we should expect uh, in our pride that everything would go well, that we're entitled to certain things, or that we, we lack compassion on others who don't have our natural abilities or certain opportunities. But the danger is also that we'll miss that, that life can be very hard because this world can be cruel and unfair. And yet in it, God can be doing things around us that we won't give thanks for. We won't recognize because we get overwhelmed by the narrative of difficulty. And so, so somehow we need to have a success narrative that's theologically sound, prepared for life in this world. And so I, wanna, I want us to consider this idea of success today. And I want to consider uh, three things uh, because I want us to redefine what success is. Uh, and, and what I want us to, to, to get the sense from this passage along from the rest of the Bible is if you look at what God made humanity for and what we're tasked with and how we're to live, at the heart of a biblical expression of success is relationship with God, that God is with us. What is a successful life? Well, God is with us. Now that could take shape in various ways. It could take shape with material prosperity or achievement, but it could take shape in other ways. What we find is if God is with us, we can live a good, meaningful life. 
And if God is not, well, we could, we could have these markers of success, however the world defines it, but find that it's empty and meaningless. And so what I want to talk about today is this idea of God being with us. And so I'm going to talk about going with God, staying with God, and being with God. And so I'm going to begin with going with God. As we think about what does it mean to live well, to, to want success, one of the problems is that, that human beings tend to get caught up in whatever the people around us, however they define success. And so we don't question it. Uh, so if some people um, have a certain, certain vision of material prosperity or achievement in certain institutions, we just buy those as the terms of the world. And that then sets our trajectory. Now, what happens sometimes is, is we become cynical because we want that success and we're not achieving it. And we resent those forms of success, so we become critical of them, but not because of a deep transformation, but because of the bitterness of still wanting it but not having it. And so all of us could be trapped in that. And so then we, we create these countercultures that have different goals, different model of success, but the fundamental attitude hasn't changed. We still create these outward um, uh, goals that, that, and then this competitive environment where, where there are winners and losers. Uh, and we just want to go to the environment where we could be winners. <laughs> um, there's something different going on here. And so um, in this story, we find that God is with Joseph. And, and what that means for some of us, if the model of success is secularized, if, if it's about wealth, if it's about status, if it's about a comfortable life, it's easy to say, I don't need God for that. You know, what I need is hard work. What I need is the right network. And therefore, a, a, a spiritual devotional life would be a waste of time, a waste of energy it would get in the way of my success. Some people believe that firmly. Others, the, the religious approach is to say, no, actually, if God is sovereign and king of the universe, then whatever I, I, I want, I won't get unless God kindly gives it to me. And our, our, our religious life then becomes God as a means to another description of success. Where transformation happens, where we start to move towards a more stable, a truer form of success, is where we realize not that we don't need God, nor that we need God to help us achieve our dreams, but that there's something about God coming into our life that actually then puts us in the right place, where yes, maybe we will prosper in certain ways, but in whatever ways it works out, we find that, that as we're growing deeper with God, that meaning and purpose and fruitfulness can more and more characterize our lives, even if we're not hitting uh, the achievements that we want. So in verses two or three, uh, two to three, this phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, is really important. His experience is he's, a, he's betrayed by his family. He's alienated in this story from the people that he works with, where he had been admired, but the Lord is with him. That becomes the anchoring point. And in the grander story that goes over the whole end of the book of Genesis, this proves to be important. The Lord was with Joseph, but then it says, and he became a successful man. So this is not simply spiritualized to say, well, Joseph had a warm heart, um, but didn't prosper. The Lord being with him in his case meant he actually was really good at what he did. Now, it doesn't always mean that. Joseph plays a unique role in history and in the Bible. It doesn't mean that the Lord being with you means that you'll have career success. But it also doesn't mean that God's vision for being with us um, is not an embodied vision. Joseph's success, the Lord being with him, did work itself out in his life. 
So it says that his master saw that the Lord was with him. That's the thing that, that's worth noticing. The master sees the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And that's what we need to try to keep together here, that, that for Joseph, yes, he's achieving, he's accomplishing, he's wise, he's skillful. Maybe that's somewhat unique about him. But the Lord being with him and the recognition that the Lord is with him is an important part of this story. And this story comes at the end of the book of Genesis. So Genesis, as, as the whole, tells a story that opens with, with God calling humanity to work and to be fruitful and therefore having meaningful lives where there's skill, ability, hard work, and a certain measure of accomplishment is meant to be normative. But in Genesis 3, humanity turns from God and the corruption breaks everything, including making work painful, bringing pride and shame, destroying everything. And so uh, from Genesis 3 to 11, there's this unraveling of these visions of human success where it becomes problematic, it becomes violent, uh, it becomes uh, awful in many ways. And then in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. And when God calls Abraham, he says, I will be with you and I will bless you. But part of the calling is, and wherever you go, I will call you to bless others. That's part of this rehumanized vision that if God is with us, we experience blessing, but we bring his blessing with us. So then Genesis uh, tells the story of Abraham and his family in this corrupted world with struggles, with failures, with unfair things. And yet the promises of God are being fulfilled. And so the book of Genesis ends where Joseph, Abraham's great grandson, is now fulfilling one aspect of the promise that God is with him. And as he goes into this other world, he's rejected by his own family. And so we know from the other narratives, the, the, the story we looked at the last time with Judah, uh, he winds up leaving his family. Uh, the previous chapter, Jacob is heartbroken, thinking that he lost his son. So when Joseph leaves, there's a certain amount of goodness and health that leaves with him. But God is with him and he, he brings that to Potiphar's house and he brings it to the prison and he's going to bring it to the whole country of Egypt that this is not the fulfillment of the promise because God's promise to Abraham was about the land. And so after Genesis is done, the story goes on. But we see the first part of Genesis about this unraveling. And all of a sudden, God calls people to be with them. And, and it's not a neat and easy story, but so long as he is with them, we find that they experience blessing and they bring blessing with them. And that creates something closer to an understanding of a biblical call to a successful life, which is, yeah, we should aspire to do well at our work and we can have nice things and we can have good relationships and the kinds of things that people value. But underneath it, we have to recognize that for it to mean anything and for it to have real fruitfulness, it can't be apart from God in our own strength or our own abilities. And it can't be using God but it has to be some sense in which God being with us is so foundational that that then allows the freedom to redefine what will God's blessings look like in my life and what form will my going into the world to bless others take? Because it often aligns with our desires. You desire to have career success and it's a struggle and it's hard, but God gives you a measure of success and you glorify God at the workplace. That happens. But sometimes there's a disconnect and there could be any number of reasons for it. But if we go into the world knowing that God is with us, we, we assume, we hope that God will bless us with our livelihood. 
but we find that the Lord's not blessing that. And so what do you do? Do you change careers? Do you still work hard? Do you hope for some future thing? Well, in the meantime, if God is with you, you can trust that, that the fruitfulness of your going into the world will be part of your calling. And that's true for all of us. We're called to draw near to God. Apart from God, we will have no successful life. But if, if God is with us, it's not just that our lives will be comfortable and easy. That's not guaranteed. But our lives will be fruitful, not just for us, but for the world in which we go to. And so therefore, when you, when you think of a devotional life where Christians are to pray or to read the Bible, we're to do what we're doing now. Let's get together with, with other people and seek after God. What are we doing? Well, it's easy after you've been a Christian for a while to go through the motions. Well, we just have the spiritual checklist. And it's important to remind ourselves, well, underneath this all, we want life with God. We're seeking after God. So when we read the Bible and pray, when we gather as a church, it's not that we're guaranteed a certain kind of experience, but, but the intention is to, to go into God's presence, to know that if I want my life to be good and meaningful, to be hopeful, I need life with God. So I'm going to continue realigning. I'm going to come with God and know that then when I go out into the world, when I arise from my morning devotional time, when I leave church on Sunday to live in the world for the week, the assumption is not that everything will go perfectly, but if God is with us, we will be strengthened, but also God will be at work through us, sometimes in obvious ways with goals that we've set, sometimes in ways that we don't yet know, but we walk with God and God blesses us. And we find that that story comes up again and again in the lives of Christians. And so Christian examples, an interesting example this week, DMX, the rapper. So he died this week, sort of tragic in that he died young, 50 years old. But here's a story of success. This was a guy that in the 90s wound up launching a pretty successful rap career. And what's not unusual in, in entertainment stories and American stories and other kind of success stories is that he had a difficult life from the very beginning, and yet he achieved fame and he had talent and ability and he had respect. But there's some interesting things about his story. One is, is the success story didn't unfold, certainly not in the same way that other rapper success stories unfolded in terms of uh, acting careers and things like that. But one component of his story is, is, is he doesn't simply share that he grew up in a tough neighborhood and that becomes a badge of pride, but, but he shares about weakness and struggle. And so at an early age, at 14, uh, becomes addicted to drugs. And that becomes something he always looks back at with resentment. He tells it like an Adam and Eve story about how he was tempted and corrupted. And he took with him for his whole life this struggle that negatively impacted him. So he was in and out of prison, a lot of it drug-related. So here's a guy who has this story of struggle, of imprisonment, of successes, but then challenges. But what makes him an interesting figure is rather than having a prideful, look at how strong I am and, and look what I overcame, or the kind of faking it, un underplaying that and trying to highlight his talents, there was something about the way he carried it that at least had a chord of humility that people saw in his story that here was a guy that really struggled. And what did he do with the struggle? And the interesting component is he's a Christian. And this week in, in a number of the, the reports, and so I, you know, I had friends that were fans that during the week were, you know, I had Christian friends, hey, pray for him, he's in the hospital. Um, but, but, but I was surprised that even something like NPR, writing an article as a tribute to him, um, highlighting his Christianity. And what's interesting about that is when we, when, 
within the church, when we think of the Christian success narrative, we can't help but thinking in moral categories. And therefore, it's fine if a person had a messy life, a broken life, even an immoral life, because God is a God who forgives. God gives second chances. But the Christian success narrative is God gives second chances, and then there's a thorough reform. <laughs> but DMX is interesting in that, that, that he, he improves, he gets his life together, but there's ongoing struggle, there's regular arrests, there's, there's failures, and he's, he's open with that, and it, it creates an uncomfortable narrative. It's not like Joseph's narrative, who was this moral example. What do we do with DMX? Well, what's interesting is, um, let me read the end of the NPR tribute to him. Uh, where it says, uh, this is the end of the article, it says DMX was a devout Christian, and he would end his live sets with a prayer, and it even links to a prayer uh, that's on YouTube, a prayer that could not be more, it was like a revival meeting prayer, we use the language of the blood of Jesus and spiritual battle, this is not the kind of video you would normally think NPR would want to link their listeners to, so it says he would end his live sets, so his concerts, with a prayer, in a 2019 interview with GQ, he talked about being so overwhelmed after shows that he would need a private moment of his own to pray. I just take a minute for myself and just, I thank him, I praise him, and I'm like, thank you, thank you. I'm like, who am I to deserve this? <laughs> That's how the article ends from this interview. Um, you know, Christians, sometimes we assume uh, secular media is always going to take the opportunity to negatively portray Christianity. Fair enough, often does, unnecessarily. But here's a story where, where they point to this man's faith, and, and the example is, here's a guy whose concert would be filled with things that we wouldn't want him doing the offertory at church, some of the things he's saying. But he ends his concert calling everyone, you know, this is not a religious meeting, these are ticket buyers. He prays this crazy, in the name of Jesus, revival prayer, he ends his concert, but then when he leaves, he shares in this interview, he's so overwhelmed with the sense of having loved people, a gratitude that God used him in some way, that before he signs autographs, he needs to sit and pray. <laughs> you hear so many stories of, of, of entertainers who leave on a high because they've gotten applause, or leave angry and humiliated because things didn't go well, or because they're dissatisfied with their uh, their um, performance life. Here's a guy who ends his set with prayer. And he has this sense, Lord, maybe today I was here to serve these people, not just with my gifts, but, but with a message. And then he leaves and he has gratitude. You know, DMX is not, he's not the model of the Christian success story of a guy who morally went from depraved to perfect but he is an example of a story of a guy who God called and was always in tune with his own weakness and vulnerability and always immediately bore witness rather than covering it up to saying in all of my brokenness and disadvantages, I marvel all the more that God is kind to me. And he's a witness to that. And in that sense, he understands something of a truly successful life. God is with him. And then anything above that, record sales, concerts, a good performance, a bad performance, criticism, people laughing at him, all of that is in a context where he has the conviction God is with him. And in that sense, while he may not be the example that we would want to have in every way, but really none of us are, he does become an example of a witness that then secular media speaks positively about his Christianity. 
And that's striking. Why? Well, because something about God being with him came through in his story. We go out into the world, and in verses four to six, it said, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Now, now Joseph's story is a little bit like Daniel's story in that he's a person of faith in, a non, in an environment that doesn't acknowledge his God. Joseph is morally upright, as Daniel was. Not everybody's story is like that. So there's a lot we can learn from this Joseph story. But not all of us will have this moral perfection, but all of us are called to draw near to God and to take God with us into the world and to recognize, yes, he will reform us morally. We should expect to grow. But even in our weakness and failure, when we don't go with pride, I need to cover this up so people love me, or shame, I better withdraw because I'll be a terrible witness or I'll be a failure. But when we go with the confidence that the Lord is with me, he will change me. He will deal with my mistakes and I could serve others through my gifts and abilities and sometimes through my weakness, just showing up and being present with him. And that's part of the call of a successful Christian life. Not that you live perfectly, not that you live up to somebody else's standard or even your own, but that God calls you and you come to God and you live life with him. And then you go, you go into the world with God and you live out that Genesis 3 vision, the Genesis 2 vision, to be fruitful and to multiply. So you go with God. But here I want to shift us into staying with God. One of the ways Joseph's story is different is he is a moral example. Now, Joseph's story is unique in, in that Joseph is this great individual who would bring salvation to his own family and to his own nation. Um, his story is not the typical story. So if you find yourself thinking, I don't live up to Joseph's standards, well, few of us do. Joseph himself was not perfect. But, but the story of his temptation is the story of what you're supposed to do, right? Isn't that what we say, flee immorality? He literally does that. You know, here, here's Potiphar's wife who wants to seduce him, grabs his clothing, and he flees without his clothing. That becomes the ultimate picture for us of this is what it's meant to live a Christian moral life by the spirit, that you, you flee. Yes, Joseph is that example. But what's interesting is if you go a little bit deeper and you find the dynamics of the story. So, for example, verses six to seven. The description, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. So, so Joseph is, he's handsome, he's talented, maybe he's a bit confident, the Lord is with him. And there seems to have been a recognition where people see, wow, that somehow he's open enough about his faith that they recognize God is with him. But the interesting thing, if if you happen to conform to the world's values of success, sometimes what people won't see is that God is blessing you in your work, but sometimes people are drawn to the outward forms of success, as we're all drawn to, being good-looking, being talented, being powerful, being respected by others. Potiphar's wife was drawn to that. And so what she wants is to engage in a relationship with him. Uh, and, and here are two things about this theme of being with God. One is that this, this moment isn't just a moral tale, but it's a testing of, of, of Joseph remaining with God. So, so we're told in the beginning of the story and the end of the story that God is with Joseph. Now in this story, we don't read that God is with Joseph. It's not that God wasn't there. But the question is, will Joseph remain with God? And so we find that the way that Joseph, who is walking with God, experiences this moment, verse 9, he answers 
her her appeal to him, you know, they're alone in the home. Nobody will find out. You know, the answer could be, I don't want to do this because if I get caught, I'm going to get punished. Or here I am prospering. The, the master has now given me a life and I think I'm going to be on a life of freedom. And, and if I get busted, it's not worth it. That's not what he says. Maybe he was thinking that. I don't know, but that's not what he says. What he says is, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, he's, I didn't read all of the verses. He's already said, my master trusts me with everything. And therefore, there's, there's honor. There's this invisible bond. If, if I'm treated with honor, I'm going to live by honor. And therefore, I'm not going to betray my master, even if I wouldn't get caught. But we know that, that God always sees. And there's no not getting caught by God. Verse 9, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, he doesn't say, wow, I had this conviction and God, God has so filled my heart that I don't feel this temptation. I'm perfectly pure. Maybe he felt that, but it's possible that he desired this, that he thought, I want this. This is an opportunity. We don't know what he was experiencing physically, but we know that his conviction was to do this would be to step away from God. And if God is with me, I'm not going to do that. And so it's interesting in New Testament sexual ethics, you know, there's this, this urge, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? It's this odd piece. How do you bring that into a conversation about sexual ethics with people that don't share our faith? Uh, and therefore, Christians never bring that component in that, that sexuality is joining with another person. But we're called to live by the Spirit. So, so if you join yourself in certain ways, is God going with you? It, it raises this more fundamental question, who are you? What are you living for? What is your source of strength? What is your identity? What is your source of success? And if the idea is God has called me to be with him, then I'm going to see any form of temptation as luring me away. Sexual temptation having certain obvious components of it because of joining ourselves to another. If God says, well, I'm not going to go with you into that. I don't know what Joseph was thinking, but his, his rationale fundamentally was, I am not going to sin against God. And there's this portrayal here that God had been with him and caused him to prosper. Now he's not going to seek a prosperity apart from God, but he will remain with God, even if he sacrifices an opportunity that he may have found appealing. Again, I don't know. And so it winds up being a genuine sacrifice in that she seizes him and he runs out. Verse 12, uh, he, after running out, it says he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Well, it sounds like a noble example, but imagine running out in public without your clothing. Uh, already an indication, things are not going to be good. This, this is a sacrifice. It would have been easier for him to take the opportunity. He takes the harder way. But, but I want to highlight just for a moment the role of the garment, because it gets mentioned again in verse 15 and verse 18 in the Joseph story. As we try to imagine, here's this passage describing Joseph as successful. And you get envious and you think, well, the Lord was with him and prospered him. Why is the Lord not prospering me? But, but there's a sense in which Joseph's tragic story is repeating itself because Joseph has these dreams. One day, his family will bow down to him. Um, the idea that he's going to be a person of dignity, he, he will be clothed with royalty. But that dream happens where he's wearing this coat, this valuable coat that his father had given him and his brothers resent him and they plan to kill him and they don't kill him, but they sell him off to slavery. But they take that coat and they take that garment after they unjustly sold him off to slavery. And they use it as evidence uh, in a corrupt way of presenting to the father, uh, here's the robe. This is evidence that Joseph has been killed. Joseph's garment becomes a corrupt cover-up 
for the injustice against him. And Joseph sold into slavery, that would have been a period of misery before his prosperity in the trust. I can only imagine Joseph sitting there in prison that first year and thinking, Lord, what happened? Like my life fell apart and then I, I turned to you and you were kind to me and things were going well. And then it happens again. Um, there's a lie, there's jealousy, there's accusation. And once again, I'm stripped of my garment. And that garment becomes a false witness to say that I'm an immoral person and I get punished. And so here again, that there would be this repeating of Joseph's story. He winds up in prison for two years. He starts to prosper within prison. But how long would you be in prison before your bitterness took deep root? Lord, not only once was I betrayed and sold, but here I am trying to honor you and serve you. And again, here I am falsely accused. I wouldn't betray my master. And then my master believes the false accusation against me. I was so trustworthy. And then he believes a lie and I'm in prison. Most of us would say, if success in life is the Lord being with you, Lord, where are you now? Where were you then? Where were you when I needed you? Because I was with you. And it's that aspect of this story that we find that Joseph likely could have gone through a difficult period. Verses 19 and 20, Potiphar's anger was kindled. Joseph's master took him and put him into prison. So here you are honoring somebody who's now angry with you, doesn't trust you. That, that's, that's life in this corrupt world. And so one aspect of temptation is to be lured away from God. The other aspect is the disorientation of losing the sense that God is with you. And I don't know that Joseph experienced that, but I would imagine if it was me, I would have found myself saying, Lord, where are you? <laughs> Lord, how could you have this happen again? Lord, I was prospering. I was honest. I was working hard. And it made sense that I was successful. But, but what is this? And so where were you when I needed you? I sought to remain with you. Why does this happen? Part of the Christian life, there, there's two ways that we need to deal with temptation. One is to recognize in any temptation, when we know something's not God-honoring, when we know it's immoral, to say there's something here that's meant to draw me away from God. And the conviction is not, will I get caught? Will I be punished? But something deeper to say, if I want my life to be good, I'm going to walk in the spirit. I'm going to walk with God. If I need to leave God and try to cover this up, I'm just not going to do it. That's wisdom. All of us will fail in that. But even if we succeed in it, if we don't suffer the consequences of our own sin, we're called to serve God in a world where we will suffer the consequences of the sins of others. And when that happens, a similar disorientation as if we had sinned happens because that's what happens when, when you experience darkness. The disorientation word, where are you? Where were you? Where are you now? What will happen? And in any story, we need to go through seasons of life where, where we don't feel that God is with us, but by choice, we will aim to remain with God. And every one of us and every biblical character needed to do that. There are times where you will know God is with you and you will feel empowered or you will struggle, but you'll be confident. But there will be seasons and sometimes it's moments, sometimes it's a long extended periods of life where you don't feel the, the, the empowering presence of God with you. And what we're called then is not to an external moralistic religious life. What we're called to is a constant seeking of God and a patient endurance, even while we don't feel his presence. And so you need to go with God and you need to stay with God. But here's the last thing. You need to be with God. 
That's what I'm saying is a reframing of things so that success is transformed, which means that success in your life could have obvious tangible benefits. You may wind up wealthy, but you also may have a very good and meaningful life, but, but not have a lot of money. You may have great respect of others, but you may have people who resent you for being a person of integrity. We don't know how the story will work out, but we're told as if God is with us, if we're walking with God, if we are with God, there will be a strengthening there. And God will use that not simply in the end to show you his care for you, but to show you how your life served important purposes. And so after this false accusation, after his imprisonment, and before he rises the ranks, because the next story is eventually, we know that this narrative is actually moving Joseph to an even greater place. He's not simply going to serve this military leader, but he's going to serve the head of this powerful nation, Pharaoh himself. We know that. So we can say, ah, what kind of suffering? So Joseph had to go through a couple of years in prison. But Joseph doesn't know this. Joseph knows I was a person of integrity. I was prospering. Now I'm in prison. I'm falsely accused. And we don't know what God will do in the future after the resurrection. Some of us know right now we're, we're struggling, we're failing. Um, even in the imprisonment, verse 21 says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. So again, I don't know Joseph's experience. If he got bitter, if he was tempted, if he complained, if he was confused, I have no idea. But we're told objectively, the Lord was with him, showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So again, here he is, a person of faith out there in a world that doesn't believe his God, doesn't live by his morality. And yet, because God is with him, he eventually gains their favor. And so verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Joseph becomes this picture of, of a person who's whose life is rightly lived and others recognize something of the power of God, the ways of God, even if they don't give glory to God, but often they will. The keeper of the prison trusted him because of his godliness. Uh, and so we find that the story is even in Joseph's suffering at that point, he could have said, forget it. But the Lord was with him and something about Joseph continued to walk with the Lord and there was some restoration. He's still in prison. His life is not wonderful. He's not back with his family. He's not working for his own gain. But somehow this story is God is doing something redemptive in this. And we find that that plays itself out again and again. And of course, Joseph is this great example to us, but he's not a perfect human being. But he was great enough that we don't have to live up to his standard. But we find that Joseph himself was, he, he wound up being called to save his family. But he comes a picture of the true savior, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes, we find that God is with him. He's the very son of God divine. He calls God father in a way that we're, we're meant to follow his example, but God is fa his father in a very unique way. Two moments in Jesus's life, in his ministry, where we have that affirmation at his baptism, the very voice of God to tell him, and in the hearing of others, this is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. And then at the end of his earthly ministry in what's called the transfiguration, this is my son with whom I am pleased. Listen to him. The transfiguration, a, a period where his, his appearance changes and three of his disciples see something of the reality of his glory that was not seen. What's interesting is both of those moments of God speaking to him at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry are followed by temptation. The voice, this is my son whom I love. And in Matthew, he hears that when he's baptized and then goes into the wilderness for 40 days. 
So God was with him, but now he's fasting. And it's, it's this dark, isolated place. At the end of his successful period of resisting temptation, angels come and minister to him. But at that point, he may not have felt that the father was with him, but he, by conviction, remained with God. And then in the transfiguration, something of his glory that one day will be shown comes out. This is my son whom I love. But then he's betrayed and arrested and goes to the cross. And again, there the father was with him, but now he's crucified. Is the father with him? What is Jesus's experience? I'm so filled with the love of God and the revelation of his glory that I'm just going to stay on this cross in order to love these people. Now, again, we don't know all of what Jesus was thinking, but we know from his words that he had to remain faithful to stay with God when he did not experience that God was with him. One of the famous last recorded words was a cry of alienation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What a question that any of us could ask. Of, of all the Bible figures, why would Jesus be forsaken? Wasn't he called to a fruitful, successful life? And his own people rejected him because he, he was not uh, living up to their model, their understanding of success. And here he is having his garments stripped from him and being put on the, the cross and crucified and humiliated. And he cries out, why have you forsaken me? And what we know is in that moment, God was not with him because Jesus was cut off so that those who had been cut off can be joined. Jesus was alienated so that the alienated could become reconciled. That Jesus, the older brother, was the rejected brother so that we could become brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. The gospel story is a story that God is more invested in being with us than we have been invested in our being with God. And where it's too late for us to have said, well, how can I do this? How can I not do this thing and sin against God? All of us have sinned. And the disorientation we experience is because we live in this corrupt world. What we're told is the redemptive story is that there was someone greater than Joseph who lived a perfect and upright life. And he didn't fit the world's model of success, but God was with him. And therefore, it's a, it's a narrative of death and resurrection. That's the Christian story. See, some of us get, get drawn to narratives of death. We're cynical about the world. We hate our experience. And there's something about suffering and brokenness that we're drawn so much to that that we, we're afraid to let go of it. And we resent success stories and, and we say, stay stuck in that. Some of us are, are so drawn to success stories that we can't deal with the reality of our own flaws or the flaws of others around us. And so we have this wishful thinking. The gospel story is a redemptive story because it's a true story that says God comes into this real broken world and he joins with the, the broken, the alienated, the immoral, uh, those who don't fit. And he grants them forgiveness and he invites them in, but he invites them to resurrection. He invites them from that lowest place to a place where they will prosper, where there will be a success that's granted to them as the gift of God. And so the Christian story allows us imperfect people striving to grow. Um, not buying either narrative of just allowing ourselves to be self-loathing and hating and aiming low or buying into some superficial model of success, but, but a true grounded story that says, if God is with me, I can have a godly ambition and I could take risks and I could fail and I won't be proud if I succeed or I won't be humiliated with shame if I'm not living up. Because my, my definition of what it means to be successful has fundamentally from the inside changed. And what that means is, 
if there's an alignment with my desires and worldly success, I will rejoice in it and give thanks and give glory to God. But I also know if Jesus in his perfection was called through periods of suffering, that it doesn't mean that God is not with me if I'm failing. And so I'm going to remain with God and I'm going to trust that somehow God is using even this in his grand purposes. And I may not know how, but I'm, I'm going to remain with God and trust that at the end of the day, I will see that, that everything that God used, my skills and talents and abilities, my failings, my weakness, and my struggles, all of this is part of a story where God has been with me. Sometimes I saw it, sometimes I didn't. But there's stories of death and resurrection. That's the Christian narrative. We are called to die to ourselves and to live with Christ, to join with him, which means none of you have made so many mistakes or are so disadvantaged or so incompetent that Christ doesn't want you in his kingdom and will not use you in a powerful way. And none of you are so wonderful and perfect that God wants you because you're going to make his church better. All of us are drawn in to be part of a community that says we are a people that are seeking after God. We want God with us. And we trust God is going to change us. He's going to grow us. He's going to forgive us. He's going to make us better. He's going to make our lives better. And we don't know if it's going to be an easy story. We don't know the ratio of success to failure. But we know that if he is with us, we have strength for the lives he's given us and has called us to. And if Jesus Christ could be handed over to betrayal only to become the king of the universe, we who are united to Christ, we could take our imperfect selves and trust that the Lord will do great and marvelous things with us. So don't try to have any kind of life with aspirations of success apart from God. Don't try to use God to fulfill your own desire for success, but seek a deeper transformation to learn from God what true success is. Draw near to him and be with him, and he will teach you and show you, and he will make your life fruitful. Believe that this week. Watch for it and expect whether great things happen or discouraging things happen, there will be opportunities for God to do something uh, that will show his glory. So live for it this week. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we are drawing near to you today as a community that seeks to worship, that seeks forgiveness, that seeks renewal and change. We're discouraged. We've failed. Um, Lord, even our successes sometimes are confusing in our lives. Lord, we need a deeper transformation. We need to be redefined. And we pray that your spirit would lead us today as we come out of this gathering, as we go back into the world, that we would take these things with us and, and show us this week by your spirit how we might realign our lives more fully, more humbly, more gloriously with you. And help us to have energy that we would aim for, um, for great things today, this week, in the season of life, even if we're discouraged. Even if we're incapable, even if we're not good enough, Lord, help us to trust in your power. You will grant us success and help us to see if it's not taking shape in the way we want it to, uh, what it means for our hopes and aspirations, how you're teaching us. But Lord, use us so that our lives are not wasted. Help us to have joy in you, uh, to have strength and confidence in you. Uh, take away our pride, take away our shame, but don't take your Holy Spirit from us. Fill us, Lord, and send us into the world with your grace and peace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.